What's next? This is a question we're all having to ask and answer more frequently. I'm Jenny Blake, your host of the Pivot Podcast and author of Pivot, The Only Move That Matters is Your Next One. For show notes from this episode, visit pivotmethod.com slash podcast. If change is the only constant, then let's get better at it. Here we go. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Pivot Podcast. I am so excited to be here today with not one, but two doctors. That's right. The pandemic has gone far enough. Now we need to bring another expert to the table. But in true serendipity, as often happens around Pivot and in my life, I'm just so delighted to be here today with Dr. MJC and Dr. Anthony Harris. You all know Dr. Michael J. Consuelos by now. He's been my co-host for 13 episodes of Pivoting Around a Pandemic, this mini-series that we're doing. Michael has been involved in pandemic response off and on since 1997 as events come and go in terms of importance. He's been a solopreneur for over a year now, helping businesses now look toward the future and how do they move forward from this? How do they plan A, B, C, D, and Z? as we look toward reopening. And there's no normal, but as we try to get to some sort of steady state while always being open to change. And I'm so excited to introduce you to Dr. Anthony Harris. Dr. Harris has advised New York City businesses in high-tech manufacturing, food and beverage production on how to keep workforces safe as they reopen during the COVID-19 pandemic. He is a doctor. He is a serial entrepreneur. He fought his first patent as a freshman undergrad. He is a preacher's kid, so blends faith, medical, entrepreneurship, all the things that we know and love here on the Pivot Podcast. And he has currently been at work care for two and a half years. He's now their chief innovation officer and medical director. He's leading over a million screens now for coronavirus every day beyond just New York City. Dr. Harris, welcome to the show. Thank you, Jenny. Uh, great to be here. And thank you, Dr. Mike. And uh, looking forward to, uh, to talking. So we got the lucky opportunity to hear a little bit more about you before we hit record, because this is the first time that the three of us are meeting and chatting. Dr. Harris, can you just catch us up a little bit? Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, born and raised in uh, the South and Went to undergrad at Indiana University, uh, where I got a dual degree MBA with my passion for invention. Uh, I realized the business piece uh, plays a big role in scaling whatever I invent. And uh, started a couple of medical device companies after doing a couple of years of general surgery and a fellowship in medical device design. Uh, and left medicine really for about two, three years, uh, serving as interim CEO and chairman of those businesses. You know, we did the whole venture capital raise $10 million, uh, you know, uh, FDA, uh, EUA kind of, kind of approval and, uh, ended up finishing residency in occupational environmental medicine. That's my board certification now. Uh, and that's been a, a blessing in regards to helping companies, large businesses keep their workforce safe. And certainly that's played out in a powerful way with regard to uh, COVID-19. So I'm um, just you know, really happy to talk more about you know, how this has impacted my career and outlook uh, on health and wellness. Thank you. I want to start by asking you, Anthony, cannot believe we're halfway through 2020. And it feels like five years have passed in the span of six months. 
how has this year been for you so far, especially as doing the work you're doing with work care? I mean, I don't even know where to start. Just either how you first got impacted when coronavirus started really making its way into the States in mid-March, or where do you find yourself now? And how are you doing it? Aren't you, aren't you just exhausted? <laughs> you're really on the front lines. You know, it, it's been a whirlwind, right? Um, I probably haven't uh, had as little sleep uh, during, you know, at, compared to my residency during general surgery. Um, but it's been uh, an opportunity very much so to, to hit a goal of just impacting, uh, you know, as many lives as we can. And I, I do serve as the lead doc at WordCare for our COVID-19 initiatives. Um, and, you know, this, we've actually been advising companies uh, since February. Uh, that's when we started advising on infrared thermography for uh, temperature screening. And we've grown it since then to do the daily screen. We were probably the first movers in the marketplace to offer a digital platform for doing a daily screen for 100% of the workforce. And like I said, we went from zero to uh, 20,000 workers being screened every day in about 72 hours uh, in, when we launched the uh, service. Uh, and we've just been doubling down from there with the notion that you know, if we can prevent one you know, person from going and, and transmitting the coronavirus to grandma, grand, grandpa, you know, that's a potential life saved. So um, for, for home life, you know, it's, it's interesting. I, I've been, uh, so WorkCare is a distributed workforce. We've got about 300 employees. Uh, and we're kind of strewn throughout the U.S. So I've um, always worked from home since I've been at WorkCare and managed our on-site clinics. We went from uh, 50 clinics that I managed to over 300 clinics just because of COVID in terms of boots on the ground, helping companies keep workers safe with screenings. Um, and so it's it's been, um, home life has been interesting in terms of balance. Uh, and one of the things I'm learning now is Balance is kind of a myth, right? It's it's all about uh, counterbalance, if you would, versus true uh, balance. And it's been fun to kind of bring my family into the journey in terms of you know sharing what we do and who we're impacting, the lives we're hopefully saving uh, through our efforts. I like that counterbalance piece, Anthony. And I and I have, I'm sort of relatively new to that working from home thing for the past year, even though I did some days here and there. Like, what kind of advice or what kind of things have you found that you were surprised that you're doing now, you know, so you work from home a lot, but now you're doing things differently. Like what, what things have, have made your life working from home just a little bit easier or. Sure. R- routine um, is key, right? Yeah. Uh, so, you know, we, we often going into the clinic or going into the office as opposed to you know going into the office every day, you can develop a pretty, we most everybody's developed a pretty good routine, right? Uh, so the key with working at home is to have the same, right? Have a routine that, um, gets your mindset uh, prepared to tackle the most important things of the day. And that's probably the second piece, making sure you focus in on uh, what is the, if you had to choose one, I'm reading a book right now, um, uh, and it's all about the, the one thing um, and choosing the one thing, whether that's for the day, whether that's for the month or for your career, that you're going to get after with fervor. And uh, for, for the day-to-day working from home, choosing that one thing, um, and as early as you can that morning, that, that morning uh, and then making sure that you get that done in the prime of your frontal lobe activation, uh, your, your, you know, being able to focus. Uh, that's been key for me. Uh, and I, I think 
as I share with our distributed workforce that's you know used to uh, about forty percent of people at work care are used to going into an office at some point during the week, and so trying to help them establish those routines has been uh, beneficial for sure. I love the one thing. It's a great book. <laughs> indeed, indeed. All, all the questions, like I love where he gets to the point where he says, "What is the one thing that would?" make the biggest difference in this week ahead? Or what's the one thing that would completely transform your relationship? Or what's the one thing that would make your entire workload easier? Like it, it gets really powerful. It's, it's not as straightforward as it sounds. Some of those questions are very transformative. You no, know, it, it, it's so interesting, right? When you can distill it down to that, you know, it brings so much clarity to not just your day, but kind of your focus for the next, you know, couple weeks to the next couple months. Uh, and, and beyond work, it helps you do that, you know, in, in home life, in your relationships. Uh, so it, it's a really powerful way to, to focus your energy for sure. So on the subject of energy, we're recording this now on Wednesday, June 10th. And the country has been in tremendous upheaval, necessarily so. How has it been for you the last two weeks? I know a lot of people I speak with are just exhausted and angry and processing and grieving. And there's so much emotion. It's, it can be hard to focus on work during times like this. And you also have an interesting perspective, um, one, as a Black man in America, but also being Black in the fields of entrepreneurship, in medicine, how has it been for you these last two weeks and beyond, but also like, how do you find the time or space to process your own energy while holding up so many others through the work you're doing as chief innovation officer at WeCare? I probably haven't taken as much time to be reflective about what's going on because I've been in the moment of you know, what we're doing in terms of our work and preventative, preventative uh, strategies for the workforce with regard to COVID-19 and other types of illness, as I, it does remind me um, as I, in, in the few moments that I stopped and actually thought about, you know, the unrest, right? Um, and certainly those moments came here in Chicago where even in my neighborhood, I live just uh, south of McCormick Place, uh, in an area called Bronzeville. It's where historically the African-Americans had to live because they weren't allowed to live uh, in other areas of the city um, during segregation times. And so you had a very diverse uh, collection of African-Americans from doctors and dentists and lawyers to you know, those who were helping uh, on the front lines of you know, janitorial services and things of that nature. So you know, the, the neighborhood um, had three fires um, during the riots that you know, were, were uh, on, you know, not just social media, but the news. Uh, and they were, I mean, literally we woke up one morning and uh, outside was, was uh, probably heard lightning, sorry about that, uh, thunder. Uh, but the uh, outside was smoky from the fires. And during those moments of reflection, it, it kind of brought to, brought to bear, you know, why? Right. Why? One, why are we seeing the, the level of unrest? Um, and for me, what does that mean? Right. How have I I believe the unrest is coming because, you know, our human nature is that we all want to be seen in the here and now with positive regard. Um, and that hasn't been, you know, the African-American experience in, in the U.S., um, it hasn't been my experience at all times. And as a physician, sure, I have I have 
um, you know, moments where I am regarded positively, but I've also experienced the, the opposite, even uh, walking into a patient's room. And so it, it's during those moments that I stop and just kind of reflect on, you know, wh- why what we're seeing uh, is present and why it needs to change. Uh, and reflects on my my own experience of how it shaped me as a uh, African American male. And I mentioned earlier while we were talking uh, earlier before the show started. You know, I, I have a son on the way, and so what is it going to mean to, you know, bring another African American male into the world and try to teach him, you know, what he's going to experience? Um, it, it, it's definitely something that um, causes me fear and, and anxiety, uh, if I'm being honest. And and and. Uh, you know, I, I just kind of think about it in that frame, if you would. Yeah, thank you for sharing. It's There's no way I can begin to understand, but I, I so appreciate you sharing your where you're at with everything. And it does seem like and you're just at this, again, incredibly unique place and moment in time of the pandemic has created so much fear and anxiety among people and just fear of each other in a way, like even in New York City. Just as you pass, you can only see people's eyes. There's just so much under the surface because of the pandemic. And then I, I think it's so important what's happening with the protests of also in the Black Lives Matter movement of saying like, we demand to be seen and heard and it's long overdue. And what you were saying about not always feeling seen, even in the medical community or working as a doctor. I'm seeing now across a lot of different communities, Black friends are raising their hands and saying, actually, I have not felt welcome in this community, where people like, let's say the white community leaders might have thought, oh, I'm inclusive. I'm not racist. This is a safe space. And yet it, it isn't. And so it seems like that lightning and thunder is so powerful as a backdrop, but it seems like there's this moment of kind of turning the lights on in the room, saying, wake up, everybody, wake the F up. No, I, I agree. And it, you know, really is a, it seems to be a culmination of, um, you know, shared suffering, shared experience because of COVID-19 that has left people really raw, right? Um, and, and primed for change um, because, you know, they're, they're able to um, co-journey now in some way, shape or form with the suffering that uh, African-Americans have had, you know, for um, for all this time. And so, you know, it, it's also powerful to see, you know, black, white, brown hands join in peaceful protest, right? Um, because, you know, they, they are having a shared experience, uh, again, due to COVID in, in terms of how it's impacted their lives uh, individually and collectively. Uh, it's profound. That's really well said. I couldn't have said it myself, is that this, this time of COVID has been, at some level, maybe in my mind, a great equalizer. Right. I mean, the virus doesn't know boundaries. The virus doesn't know race. I mean, unfortunately, we see these significant numbers in in uh, high risk populations, and you know, obviously, in is hit the black and and Hispanic community, which I belong to, uh, much more strongly uh, because of the number one, the work that we usually do, which is much more in the essential worker kind of phase, but also the neighborhoods and the impact of overall health of our communities. So I think I think you're right, Anthony. I think that raw feeling of just the past two or three months, and then just I think this this continuing pressure uh, building up. Um, you know, I think we're seeing that, and I think you know I, I'm 
and, and just the, the level of discomfort that, that people have in having the conversation, I find also just, you know, disconcerting. And I, I don't know where to, you know, sometimes take people to, to, you know, ask more questions. And as, you know, as a physician, we're sort of sometimes postured to say, okay, we see a problem, we, we want to do a test, we want to make a diagnosis, and we want to heal right away, right? There's that sort of like jumping onto the healing process right away. And I just sort of have to check myself and go, okay, there's a lot more listening, a lot more diagnosing, a lot more testing and understanding. And in my mind, you know, stretching the boundaries and, and, and being, you know, giving people space and a, and a sort of a container to kind of explore their edges. Um, because I think we, you know, if we jump too quickly, at least personally, if we jump too quickly to too like, okay, this is the solution, we have the ability to maybe just put a bandaid on something and not really find out what that, what that, you know, just like in medicine, if you just basically treat the symptoms and not the underlying disease, you're not going to heal the patient. You know, long term, it's not going to be the the true the true um, process that you want to have. So I, I really you know enjoy your words and your perspective on this. And one of the questions um, I have for you as an entrepreneur, I mean, as a physician, you know, I can I can relate to that. As an entrepreneur, how do you see yourself? You know, um, and the things that you've learned, and maybe things you can share with us. Because you'd really bring a different perspective of being a physician and an entrepreneur, and how does that how does that work, and how do you balance your interests and your time? I'm just interested in your journey, I guess, a little bit more. Sure. You know, wow. Um, as I'm just kind of thinking about it in the moment now, uh, with with you with you too, um, the impact um, as I as I prepare for a listening session with the business incubator that I'm associated with downtown Chicago, 1871, they've reached out to black founders um, mm. and they want to hear from us. And as I reflect on what to say and how to respond and how I've been impacted. And as we're talking here now, you know, it, it I know the facts, right? I know the facts that, uh, you know, entrepreneurs aren't made up primarily of African-Americans, right? We're, we're less than, I believe it's less than uh, 5%, right, of entrepreneurs. I know that we don't have capital, ac- access to capital, like like our, um, you know, white counterparts. I know that we are underrepresented, uh, both male and female. Uh, and I know that I've experienced personally, you know, raising capital and not being as successful as my counterparts um, in, in the medical device industry. You know, I, the depth of it really that I'm starting to, you know, just spend time and reflecting is uh, it may not be necessarily that, you know, I'm, I'm singled out and disadvantaged because uh, of a implicit bias. Perhaps it, it is, you know, if we can make, if I can make general assumptions about my preparedness, perhaps I'm less prepared. Right. But then it's, it's not to dismiss the racial layers that have uh, potentially caused a systemic uh, ill-preparedness of of black and brown people in the entrepreneurial uh, uh, avenue, because we know that, uh, you know, wealth generation is generational. uh, And we know that entrepreneurism is also closely tied to a generational legacy, right? Numerous uh, co-founders I talk to, white counterparts say, oh yeah, my dad is a businessman, is a business owner, you know, and his father too. Right. And so that that is not me. And that's few of the uh, black entrepreneurs I know where we don't have a resource 
of a of a parent or a close relative that is a serial entrepreneur, a successful business person who can, you know, basically lead us and guide us, take us under the wing uh, early in, in in our journey uh, during our adolescence and, and and train us up. And so, you know, my ability to show up and and my ability to present in a way that is on par with my counterparts uh, perhaps is crippled from, you know, years and generations uh, of uh, poor access or deliberate uh, limitations uh, to access. Uh, and, and that, that's, um, yeah, it makes me sad. And I see, I see, you know, much of what we're seeing today again in that unrest um, play out in the frustration and the anger. Um, and, and, for me personally, it, it deepens my resolve that, you know, it changes with me. And I was just sharing with my executive coach uh, yesterday afternoon, you know, my drive, right, where some of my drive comes from. And, and it's so that my, my kids don't share that same experience, right? They, they, they're able to um, begin their journey a little bit further ahead than where I was uh, because of the uh, limitations in the past generationally. Thank you, Anthony, for sharing that. And they absolutely will. I mean, it just hurts my heart. And it's it's not about me and, and how I feel. But I know that the, especially in the venture capital world, it's so skewed. And as you were saying, oh, maybe there's a chance you're not as prepared. But you were telling us before you hit record, was it that you got your business, your MBA while going to medical school? Or was it during undergrad? Sometime or another, you're doing two degrees at once. Right. Yeah. It was a, a dual degree program with my medical degree. Um, okay. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's like insane how much you've done. And, and I know that some, sometimes part of the problem is that as a society, we lift up, you know, the rare few and we say, look, anything's possible. The American dream, anyone can make it. And, but in order to even do that, there's so much to overcome. And like you said, you have had tremendous drive within you you know, just getting a dual degree in medical and your business degree at the same time. I don't know how you did it. And certainly your kids now will be able to look to you as such a source of inspiration. I'm going to step back because I love what Michael, you said about not trying to jump to heal right away. That was really important that as a doctor, your urge is often to write the prescription, put the bandaid on. And it's understandable that even I feel that urge and I'm going to say it's, it's important to be uncomfortable right now and, and look at, you know, Anthony, what you're describing in the business realm and the funding. And, and yet then we can see that the 20 something, you know, white kid in a hoodie can get funding right away. He certainly doesn't 22 years old. There's no way he has a dual medical and business degree. So I don't, I don't think we can even say, Oh, he's somehow more prepared than you other than that invisible privilege of, maybe family wealth or family legacy or family uh, that has been able to teach him business since he was a kid, things like that. I really want to say thank you. And I guess I want to turn the mic back over of, we don't have to jump to action or fixing, but is there anything you want to say? Like, is there anything around this? I know you're going to do the listening session with the business incubator. Well, you know, it, it, it comes down to practicalities too. You know, I mean, I have friends who, you know, had parents that, uh, afforded to send them to medical school, right? Um, undergrad and medical school. And because of that, they didn't walk away with student debt. 
And because they didn't have student debt, they could uh, take on risks such as entrepreneurial risks, uh, you know, more so than I was able to having no undergrad debt, but having debt from medical school, right? And so it's those seemingly, you know, insignificant differences, right, in in the totality of things that can make substantial differences in our ability to take advantage of opportunity, right? There's just, you know, maybe your parents weren't business people, right? Uh, And many of my uh, medical school cohort, I mean, their parents were doctors as well, right? So it, it still, again, the opportunity, and I've had these direct, you know, uh, conflicts, uh, even with my latest venture, right, where my partners, co-founders are saying, look, you know, full-time, go full-time, you know, let's just, just take advantage of the opportunity. And I said, no, look, I have obligations. Um, and um, because of that, I cannot. Um, yeah. So it's, it's that very real um, experience that, you know, again, affords some who are positioned, uh, not so much of privilege, right, but just so much their position financially that they can, you know, spend more time focused in on growing a business or, you know, leveraging, um, you know, a new market. Uh, whereas if you don't have that opportunity, you you may, you know, be less, um, less successful. Let's just put it that way. So, yeah, I don't know. It just causes me to think about, you know, how things that I would pass over um, from from just a superficial thought process uh, really does play a key, potentially key role in uh, in, an entrepreneur's success or not. Yeah. And thank you for sharing your experience of that. There are so many layers. And I know this conversation in the venture capital and entrepreneurship world has been happening for several years. Mm -hmm. I, I used to say, Oh yeah, I bootstrapped my business. You know, my I've been self-employed for nine years now. And mm-hmm. I used to think that I bootstrapped my business because I didn't take any outside funding. Mm-hmm. I mean, what a joke. Like, what a joke. I, I exactly as you said, I could take risks because my mom worked at Stanford. So Stanford paid half my UCLA education and I graduated with 10,000 in debt, not a hundred thousand. And I worked at Google. And then what benefits did I have from even where I went? I grew up in San Francisco, went to middle school in Palo Alto. So, okay, now I'm getting educated in Silicon Valley. Okay. Then, then what? So it's like, if I trace the chain all the way back, not just being born white, being born uh, with two parents who say, I love you. That's already something. And so mm-hmm. when I looked at this whole thing, I thought, what a, it's, it's a lie to say, you know, oh, I bootstrapped my business because, poor, and I said this on an episode a couple of years ago on invisible privilege, but uh, mm-hmm. it's 114 of what kind of boots were you born in? Mm, that's good. Yeah. What branded boots were you wearing? Did you have boots? Like, mm-hmm. and so, and so to, especially, and for me, and, and this is part of what I'm unpacking now is like, this isn't a conversation for me to dip in and out is a privilege. And it's unacceptable at this point to just, to do that, to just think, Oh, I'm just going to dip in and out of various events mm-hmm. around the world, you know? No. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think with coronavirus and with COVID to bring it back to where, where both of you focus, it's frustrating to see that coronavirus, as you said, Michael, 
kind of uh, doesn't discriminate, right? It's like anyone can get it, rich or poor, anywhere in the world at any time. And yet, as we see it playing out in America, at least, because I'm not as informed of how this the inequality looks elsewhere, um, how it disproportionately affects, and, and even the conversation around essential workers, that some of them are saying, F you. First of all, I'm not working because I choose to, because I'm a hero. I work because I have to, or I'm going to lose my apartment or not be able to support my family. And then secondly, now you're calling me essential? Like all these Amazon workers who have been fighting for their rights for so long, who weren't allowed to unionize in New York because Amazon just took the ball and went home, as de Blasio said, and then, and then now they're essential? It's it's maddening and I, it's, it's hard to know where to start with it all. Yeah. yeah. Go ahead, Michael. Yeah, no, I'm yeah, sorry. No, no. This podcast no, 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 is so no, no. inarticulate. I, think, I don't even have it, questions. No, <laughs> you know, so, you know, so what I've been wrestling with Anthony, maybe you could help uh, me and Jenny and the audience is, you know, in the, you, you have this great perspective and, and you're peering into uh, because of your work, right? These businesses who who work with work care and trying to get, you know, basically there's two populations that business owners are, are worried about, right? So it's their employees, which I think it sounds like what you're, you know, making sure that there's healthy employees going to work every day and that they're not going to, you know, infect a coworker or, or a, a customer, right? And then there's the customer where that they feel safe. Like even if you open the restaurant and it's whatever the, the right green zone order is, are people actually going to come in at, you know, at the same volume beforehand? And, you know, what I'm wrestling with, I personally am trying to help universities open because there's great data right now that shows that some universities will have a 15 to 20% drop in attendance uh, mm-hmm. this coming fall, right? And the, the, those numbers are highest in, in uh, at-risk populations, you know, the minority populations, in uh, uh, older sort of mature, as we say, adults who are basically putting themselves through school, right? So now they don't have jobs, even though they're maybe doing part-time college or university work or community college work. Now they, they have to choose, you know, do I invest in my own education or do I have to keep food on the table? Right. And, and again, going back to what you're saying that Jenny is like, what, what boots were you born in? These folks may not have the boots to do that, to, to bootstrap themselves. So, so for my work, I try to think about how do I help college students, university students, uh, medical schools, whatever it may be, make sure that they go back to school because we need them for their education and continuing their progress. But also there's, there's college universities who may fold and those college universities usually are in areas of highest risk or at least in areas where, um, you know, they serve those populations. And, you know, from, so a long winded question here, sorry about that, but you know, maybe a little self-serving for me, like what are you learning and what do you, what are you, you know, to serve specifically those business businesses that are at highest risk um, with the essential workers, what kind of investments these businesses can make in helping their workforce return to work, making sure their customers come in the door. Um, and in my, you know, my thought process, students coming back safely, athletes coming back safely, because it's obviously a huge impact across the board. So I don't know what your uh, thoughts are around. Yeah, absolutely. And I've been thinking about, um, you know, the workforce and, and universities and athletes as well. You know, the, the workforce we deal with in occupational medicine, you know, daily and been helping with. Uh, and then on, on the uh, student athlete university and, you know, my um, nephew played D1 basketball and now he's coaching in Tennessee and 
my niece plays on D1 softball for Duke. And, you know, so I've been talking with them about the return of, you know, uh, you know, athletics to the university setting and students coming back. Um, And you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, in in terms of the most vulnerable um, universities and uh, the most vulnerable populations, and then, you know, the opportunity, uh, unfortunately, to prevent a university from closing uh, it is quickly, you know, potentially passing this by because of the fear and anxiety that not just students but parents will have about sending their kids back, right? And, and so a strategy on, you know, keeping the workforce and, and then keeping the student population safe and bringing them back as quickly as possible is something we've been been absolutely focused in on. Um, and uh, again, not to, as you uh, echoed, not to be self-serving, but we uh, kicked off an initiative called COVID clear zones. Um, and the whole goal of it is to make sure that, um, you know, the employer first and foremost has a process in place um, that is very prescriptive on um, not just screening, but te- uh, COVID testing and, um, you know, a process for getting those who are symptomatic and asymptomatic home quarantine safely in the work in the workplace. And then secondarily, um, those uh, uh, who patron, uh, not just uh, obviously um, restaurants, but uh, patron, you know, whether it be um, uh, art, art, art uh, venues and whatnot as well. Um, we've been working with uh, studios, uh, production studios to help uh, bring them back online and bring the patrons uh, back to enjoying those uh, live audience, you know, um, productions and uh it's been um really insightful uh in terms of the conversations we have with the workforce and with patrons uh by way of just understanding the impact uh, from a fear and anxiety standpoint um that COVID has had and uh you know the 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 you know i think the return to normalcy that we all hope for, right? That we talk about is 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 not coming for some time. I mean, I'm not trying to be grim about it. I'm just trying to be, you know, practical about it. And and what I mean by that is uh, those underserved populations. Like again, I'm I'm quote unquote Southside Chicago, right? Uh, we've seen um, uh, not just restaurants but uh, grocery stores close up. Right, because they couldn't weather the, um, the the impact from COVID in terms of um, people uh, not coming in, um, and so now you have once food deserts that had some level of uh, attentiveness and, and you know began to have access to healthier choices, now going back to food deserts, and it, it's an impact that, again, as we talk about recovery back to normalcy, um, may linger for quite some time if we don't have solutions that uh, help uh, prevent illness and, and, and as well, again, uh, prevent the anxieties that are going to stop patrons from showing up. So you're spot on in terms of uh, there's a lot of work to be done and there's a lot of um, insights that we still need to gain in terms of understanding how to help uh, help with these matters. Yeah. I, Anthony, I, you know, I appreciate the food desert piece cause I, I've done a lot of work in 
uh, healthcare disparities and population health. And it's, you know, I think it's, we could do a whole other hour on that perspective, right? The access to, yeah. um, to, to, to uh, healthy foods, to safe and reliable transportation. We already talked about education, right? You know, so um, yeah, absolutely. So yeah, thank you for bringing that up because I had totally been uh, blind to that piece and how important it is to have these, uh, little islands of healthy food in these neighborhoods stay alive. And, you know, this, and it, it, I would direct you to some of the interesting data that's around sort of the dollar store and some of these like convenience based groceries that open up in rural areas and inner cities and how they really don't, you know, market healthy foods, those to those populations and actually add to the disease state. So thank you for bringing that up. That is, that is some great info. I want to hand it off to Jenny. Cause I think, you know, I think we've, uh, we've got, we are moving into some interesting space, but I know Jenny, you want to take it from here? I'm just in awe of both of you and this conversation. I'm admiring our attempt to boil the ocean in an hour, <laughs> less than an hour. So many important topics. I'm really glad both of you brought up food deserts as well. There's another topic that I just, I'd kind of dipped in and out of over the years, um, but it's so, it's so important. And my dad used to live in rural Tennessee. I know, Anthony, you lived in Tennessee at one point and Correct. there was just nothing there. There was no Whole Foods. There's no Whole Foods. It's only fast food and Walmart and just seeing it because again, like I've mostly lived in San Francisco, LA for a short period in New York and food deserts are real. And it's where my dad was living in rural Tennessee and now rural Washington. There's nothing. Main street is closed. You walk down main street. My dad's been kind of raising the flag on this, trying to waving the flag for, for many years. He calls it cannibal capitalism that you go to Main Street and it's boarded up and closed. And this is pre-pandemic where windows are broken, windows are boarded up, shops are boarded, nothing can survive. It's, it's a blight. It's very bleak. And again, that's pre-pandemic. Wow, there's so much pain that's it's been around and so much inequality that is increasing. I just appreciate both of you shining light on this. And I think we can only each do our best to keep doing that. It's just raising this awareness so that listeners and people can each take whatever steps that they can in their own sphere of influence. Anthony, I know we're just about out of time, so this can be brief, but I have a feeling, well, hopefully if you're willing, we can pick up again sometime for another conversation. You grew up the preacher's son. So what role does faith play for you in days like these and times like these in a year like 2020? I distill it down to my work and my impact and my my one prayer, uh, which is God help me impact your people. Uh, And I've had more clarity during these times than I ever had before. I mean, even as a physician charged to um, take care of lives, um, I didn't have that focus necessarily in my entrepreneurism. Uh, and the efforts that we've put forth with new business designed specifically to help impact uh, and prevent in COVID has helped me gain that clarity. And it has made a world of difference in my waking up each morning uh, and, and, and just getting after it. That single focus, that one thing, uh, God, help me impact your people. That is so beautiful. That is so beautiful. Thank you for sharing. God, help me impact your people. Thank you. Yeah, my pleasure.
Thank you, Anthony. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, I have a similar one. Um, make me a messenger. Mm-hmm. So just make me a messenger. Put me to work. Show me. Show me what to do. What's next? I like that. Thank you so much, Dr. Harris. Thank you for being here, for being who you are, for doing the incredible work that you're doing in the world on all fronts. And congrats on the baby on the way. I hope we can (laughs) continue this conversation sometime. And thank you, Dr. MJC, for being my fearless co-host as always. Thank you, Jenny. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the Pivot Podcast. Make sure you don't miss an episode or my insider tips and templates by signing up for Pivot List, a curated twice monthly newsletter where I share the inside scoop on what I'm reading, watching, listening to, and the latest tools I'm geeking out on. Sign up at pivotmethod.com slash pivotlist. Get show notes from this episode at pivotmethod.com slash podcast and connect with me on Twitter at Jenny underscore Blake. Remember, build first, then your courage will follow. Hasn't it always 